several months ago when the quarantine began, there was an announcement uh, that we were all supposed to stay at home, except for the essential workers. Now, when the announcement went out that only essential workers were uh, allowed to show up to work, all of us knew exactly what that meant. Those people who were mission critical to keeping our society moving. Those people that uh, without question needed to keep leaving their houses to go to work, to do what they need to do. And early on, uh, the essential workers was just that core group, that primary group of people uh, who left their homes every single day and they went out into the world uh, so that you and I uh, could keep functioning as a society. There were people like uh, law enforcement, uh, people in the medical field, uh, people who were working at grocery stores and food production. Uh, firefighters, uh, and then of course hardware stores, and those those things that were considered kind of an essential uh, in case there was an emergency, somebody needed to take care uh, of you and me. And and so there was a small group uh, that was supposed to shelter in place, uh, and it was only supposed to be uh, the essential workers who went out. But as the quarantine went on, as the stay-at-home orders uh, went on, did you notice uh, that the essential workers list started to get bigger and bigger and bigger? And more and more people were added to the essential worker list. And the longer this went on, pretty soon uh, people were asking themselves, am I an essential worker? Well, at some point in time, we all kind of figured uh, that if you needed a paycheck, uh, that you were an essential worker. And so here we are months into uh, the quarantine, the stay at home order, and nearly everyone is now defined as an essential worker. And the lines got, have gotten really blurred from early on uh, when things were just absolutely critical, just this core small group to where we're at today. And I think this in many ways is the same dilemma that the church has gone through uh, for hundreds and hundreds of years. In Acts 2, uh, the birth of the church, people started asking the question, well, what are the essentials? What are the fundamentals? What are the basics to being a follower of Jesus Christ? And sometimes they, they focused on those things, and other times they're like, well, what, what about these things and, and those things? And, and so there's this kind of this back and forth, and there's been this ongoing discussion and dialogue, uh, among, especially among theologians and, and leaders leaders in the life of the church. In fact, there was even a term during the Protestant Reformation, uh, adiaphora. And adiaphora is simply uh, those things that are non-essential. And so we've got these categories for what's mission critical, what are the essentials, and uh, or, or are, is it just adiaphora, just kind of everything thrown in. And so today, uh, we are starting a brand new series called uh, Essential Faith. 
And of course, the big idea behind uh, this series is we're going to focus on the essentials, those things that are mission critical to what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Because I think uh, with all the noise in the church and in the world, uh, the lines can get really blurry. And sometimes we think that the things that are out here, the adiaphora, are actually uh, essential to the Christian faith. Um, but scripture tells us and gives us some guidance for what is truly essential to the faith. Now, I've got uh, a, a prop here with me. Uh, this is a three-legged stool. And so for three weeks, we are going to focus on the three essentials of what it means uh, to be a Christ follower. And the reason why I've got a three-legged stool is because it's a reminder that you can take away a leg, one of the legs of the stool, and, and, it, and, and it'll still kind of work, I suppose. It's, it's going to be a little awkward, uh, and it's certainly not going to hold much weight. Um, but you need all three. All three legs to this stool are absolutely essential. And so today, uh, we are going to focus on uh, what might be uh, considered the most obvious uh, leg of the stool, uh, the one that most of us think about when we think of uh, church doctrine or church ideas. And that is simply uh, the orthodoxy of the Christian faith. Now, when I say orthodoxy, I want to break that word down just a little bit. Ortho means something that is true, something that is right, something that is correct. Think about you go to the orthodontist and they make your teeth straight. Or you go to an orthopedic doctor and they fix your bones. They make them right. And it's the same idea with orthodoxy. Ortho is to make them right, make them true. Uh, and, and doxy, uh, you can, we can think of in terms of doctrine. Doxy is doctrine or teaching. It has to do with the mind. It has to do with how we think. And so orthodoxy, you put them together, and obviously it means right thinking or correct doctrine. Now, immediately out of the gate, uh, we run into problems uh, with orthodoxy because here's the problem. Orthodox Christian teaching, by definition, is going to be offensive to the world. We live in a culture in a day and time where there is no such thing as ultimate truth. It's very offensive when we talk about ultimate truth because in our culture today, it's you have your truth, I have my truth, we're all going to just have our own truth. And the worst thing you can do is tell me that I'm wrong, right? That's about the worst thing you could do in our culture today. And by the way, uh, there's another theological term for that. It's called heresy. And heresy simply means false teaching. It means counterfeit. It means a fake. And uh, so by us saying that there is an orthodox Christian teaching or orthodoxy, also means that the opposite has to be true, that there is heresy, that there is false teaching. So one is completely right and one is completely wrong. 
And so I know uh, that we're getting off on the most controversial uh, topic even before we open scripture to understand what it's about. But this was the problem with Jesus, is he said and taught things that were very unpopular. He said and taught things that were very controversial. Controversial. He said and taught things uh, that just made people so angry. He was so offensive. And you know, even today, people get offended uh, by the Christian church and the Christian teachings. But I want to remind you before we kind of launch into this series that Jesus offended people over and over in his day. In fact, Jesus was so offensive in his ultimate claims to being the Son of God that they hung him on a cross. So if you think that the Christian faith is not controversial, oh, it is, and it will offend. And that's the stool, of the leg of the stool that we're going to talk about today is orthodoxy, right teaching, right doctrine. So uh, we're going to look in the, in the book of Romans, and uh, Romans is in the New Testament. If you've uh, ever wondered, hey, what is the whole Christian teaching all about? Uh, you need to read the book of Romans. Roman was, Romans was written about 25 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ by a really educated scholarly guy, a guy by the name of Paul. We know him as the Apostle Paul. And Paul wrote this, uh, this document uh, to the church in Rome, to the church, uh, helping them to understand, to clarify the fundamentals, the essentials, the core ideas of what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And, and like a skilled lawyer, he meticulously and carefully uh, goes line by line explaining to the church in Rome and to us what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, who Jesus was, who Jesus is, and how we uh, ought to respond to his uh, remarkable and offensive claims. And so uh, chapter by chapter, uh, Paul in the book of Romans is going to kind of lay out what does it mean uh, to, to, to follow Jesus. And we're going to pick up uh, for these uh, three weeks in chapter 12, because in chapter 12, Paul's going to lay out three, uh, three essential uh, components uh, to what it means to live the Christian life. Paul has already talked about what does it mean to follow Jesus, to surrender your life, salvation by grace through faith. Now that you've surrendered your life, now that you've uh, welcomed the free gift uh, that God has given to you, what do you do? How do you live the rest of your life uh, following Jesus and uh, living a good and faithful Christian life? So if you've got your Bibles, uh, Romans 12, uh, that's where we're going to begin. Let us pray. Good and faithful God, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, um, that you have not kept us wondering what it means to be a follower of Jesus. God, you have told us and you've clarified it and we continue to study and uh, just in, in awe and wonder, God, uh, how clearly you have laid out uh, the Christian journey uh, for us, especially uh, through the book of Romans and the writings of the Apostle Paul. 
So God, dwell among us today. Uh, speak to us and encourage us. God, we need some good news. It's been a rough week. It's been a rough few weeks. And Lord, just uh, we invite your Holy Spirit to come and move and transform our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, Romans 12, beginning with verse 1. Paul writes, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So Paul begins uh, in chapter 12 by saying, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. How are we saved? How are we rescued? How are we forgiven? How are we loved? Paul tells us, in the mercy of God. Paul can't stop talking about the mercy of God. Sometimes we call this the grace of God. If anybody just talked about grace and mercy over and over and over, it's Paul. And so he begins uh, this, this treatise, this teaching on, in the grace and the mercy of God. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, it's, I think it's Paul's way of saying, never forget it. Never forget God's grace in your life. He says, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Paul is talking about how do we respond to the gospel. Now that God has forgiven you and, and offered you a free and abundant life, how do you respond? He says it by offering your bodies as a living sacrifice. And Paul is writing here, uh, I think, metaphorically. Notice he doesn't say, uh, offer your, your fingers or offer your toes or your ears or your eyes. Paul says, offer your entire body, every part of you. This is how you do it. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies, everything, everything to God. Paul is telling us that following God, following and surrendering our lives to Jesus is an all or nothing. It's all in or all out. It's 100% God. I know oftentimes we want to give God just a little part here, or a little part there, or maybe a bigger part. And Paul says, no, it's everything. It's thank you, God, I'll take it all, or no thanks, God. I'm going to do life on my own. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Now what Paul's talking about here as holy we think, how in the world could our bodies be holy? How could our lives be holy? And what Scripture tells us, what Paul tells us, what Jesus tells us, is that when we give our lives, when we surrender our lives to God, that He purifies us, He cleanses us, uh, He makes us holy. And the idea behind something that is holy, it's something that's set aside. So you've got this big group of things that are just kind of not holy, if you will, but things that are made holy are set aside. Uh, they're purified uh, for something good. And so Paul says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Pleasing to God. 
You know, as we go through life, we really have a, a couple choices. We're going to please ourselves, we're going to please others, or we're going to please God. And when we surrender our lives to God, it so reorients our entire lives that we no longer want to live for ourselves. We no longer want uh, uh, to live to trying to please other people. Our goal, our mission in life is to please God. How do you know your motivation if you're truly uh, surrendered your life? Because internally, you will long to please God So Paul continues, this is your true and proper worship. Worship is a response. Worship is what we do in response, some kind of external stimulus, something that happens to us. And when we think of worship, we oftentimes think of bowing down, either literally or metaphorically. What we're saying in that moment is that or this person or, or God is worthy, worthy of our surrender. Paul says that is what is true worship. See, we, everybody worships something, right? We all worship something or some things as we go through life. And Paul isn't really concerned about all the things and trying to convince us that we all worship something. But he says this is true and proper worship. Do you hear that? Paul is already saying this idea of something that is true, which means that there is other worship that is not true, that is false, that leads uh, to somewhere else. And so Paul says, this is your response to the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ on the cross who has died for you. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And we think to ourselves, that sounds pretty easy, right? But it's not so easy to live out. It's easy to talk about. It's even easy to think about. But to actually live out is a really difficult thing. And Paul tells us why it's so difficult for us to offer our lives uh, as a living sacrifice to God as true and holy worship. He lets us know that it's because there's a battle going on in the world. There is a battle raging all around us. We get pulled aside in so many directions. So Paul's going to kind of lay out this for us uh, and just set up this contrast for us to understand why it is so difficult for us uh, to worship uh, and offer God our proper worship. True and proper worship. Paul writes this in, in uh, Romans 12 too. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. 
Now, the first word I, I underline in my Bible is Paul writes, do not conform to the pattern of this world. And, and conform means that uh, there is external stimulus uh, coming in and changing uh, what is going on inside. So the, the forces around are coming and uh, in, in, uh, bearing down on whatever that object is. And when I think about conforming, uh, I think uh, about a chameleon, you know, those little lizards, uh, and many of them can actually change color in whatever environment they're in. And uh, we, we know that they change color because there are predators uh, all around. And when they change color, it's their way to protect themselves uh, because a chameleon doesn't have a lot of other defense mechanisms. They can't fight back against a lot of other things. So what do they do? They change colors. They blend in with their environment around them. And I can't help but wonder if that's what you and I oftentimes do. We're tempted to change colors, to conform to those external uh, forces all around us. And Paul says, don't do it. Don't conform to the pattern of this world. Now, what does Paul mean by the world? When Paul writes about the world, every Jewish person would immediately go to the creation story, Genesis 1, when God is creating the world and God created, uh, according to scripture, everything was good. But then very soon after, evil came into the world and corrupted and twisted everything. And we continue to live in what we call a fallen world, a broken world, a world filled with corruption and, and brokenness. And, and just this past week, if you uh, tuned into the news for five seconds, you heard how this world is so twisted and broken and corrupted and full of sin. And scripture tells us that that's the way the world is going to continue to be until Jesus comes back again. You know, one time C.S. Lewis, uh, he was writing uh, to a group of people to help them to understand the world. And this is, I like how he defines the world. C.S. Lewis writes, the world is enemy-occupied territory. Enemy-occupied territory. Make no mistake about it. God created the world. God is watching over the world. God is holding the world. God is caretaking the world. But God allows the enemy to wreak havoc in the world. And this is now enemy-occupied territory. The enemy and all the forces of evil are wreaking havoc in the world. And so Paul writes, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Don't do it because things will go really, really bad. I remember uh, in third grade, uh, our class went on a field trip to the Como Park Zoo in St. Paul, Minnesota, and uh, uh, seeing the animals was all great and fun and I, I guess mostly memorable, but what I really remember about my third grade field trip uh, to the Como Park Zoo was that at the, at the end of the day, all of, our, uh, all of the third graders were in the gift shop and uh, we're milling about looking for uh, something special so that we could remember the day. 
And many of us were gathered uh, over uh, in the corner of the gift shop because there was this machine. And uh, when you put in four quarters into this machine, uh, all of a sudden it would start making noise and a, and a glob of uh, colored plastic would drop out. Uh, and it would go on to a, a little plate. And then you could push a button uh, and you had different options uh, to push a button. And then the, the, the machine would come together in a mold, a metal mold, and it would create an animal uh, object for you to take home with you. So I, I did it. I put in four corners and I remember that glob of shapeless, formless, liquid uh, plastic that dropped down. And uh, of course, I chose the lowland gorilla. The metal came together and the plastic was baking and cooking inside. And after about a minute, that machine opened up and my lowland gorilla dropped to the bottom of the vending machine like a bag of Cheetos. I reached down and I grabbed it and I pulled it out. And I just marveled at it because just a minute ago it was a blob of nothing. And now all of a sudden I'm holding in my hands this warm lowland gorilla. And I remember riding home in the school bus uh, back home from our field trip, feeling this lowland gorilla and smelling the plastic that was still uh, firming up inside that gorilla. And I think that's what Paul is talking about when he talks about do not conform to the patterns of this world, those external forces, because they are powerful and they can shape you in ways whether you want to or not. Do not conform. Don't allow those things to happen. He says, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the word transformed is the Greek word uh, metamorpho, uh, which of course we think of as uh, metamorphosis. Uh, things change from the inside out. It's, a, it's very different from the outside in. He says, be transformed from the inside out. And, and maybe you think of uh, like a, a caterpillar uh, that changes into a butterfly in a chrysalis. It's, it's this idea that something inside uh, is molding and shaping, and that's where the work is going on um, that Paul is talking about uh, by being transformed, and he says, in the renewing of your mind. Paul says, this is where the battlefield is. Oftentimes we think of the battlefield as out there, all those places, and sure, that's where the battlefield is. But the battlefield always starts in our minds. This is where the battles are won and fought and lost and defeated, and we battle over and over and over. And Paul says, if you want to respond to Jesus in a way that's going to help you to live the Christian life, become renewed in your mind. Fill your mind with the things of God. That's what's going to help you. That's what's going to transform your life. And instead of being changed from the outside in, you're going to be changed and transformed from the inside out. You know, there's an old saying, garbage in, garbage out. 
I think that's what Paul is talking about. Jesus in, Jesus out. So how do we do this? How do we renew our minds through the transforming power of Jesus Christ? Well, you're not going to be surprised uh, to hear me say we do that through uh, filling our minds with Scripture. Over and over and over, God invites us to spend time dwelling in His Word. Not just on Sunday mornings or, you know, one hour a week, but, but 168 hours a week uh, throughout the week. We ought uh, and are invited uh, to be reading through God's Word, Old Testament and New Testament. And, you know, sometimes people will say, well, can't I just read the New Testament? I mean, one, it's shorter. Uh, two, it's, it's about Jesus, and it just makes me so much happier, and it seems a little less complicated. And, and I get it, right? I understand. Um, the New Testament is a wonderful uh, section of God's Word to read. But we also need to pay attention to the Old Testament. Jesus paid attention to the Old Testament. Time and time again, as Jesus was out there teaching, uh, he would look at people and say to them, have you not read? And then he would quote some passage uh, from the Old Testament. In fact, as you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospels, Jesus quotes the Old Testament 64 different times. Over and over and over, he's quoting the Old Testament. Now, this is Jesus, right? I mean, when people are asking questions and he's teaching and people say, hey, why is it like that? He could have just said, because I say so and I'm God, right? He could have said that. He could have done. That's what I would have done. But he doesn't. He points people towards scripture over and over and over the Old Testament. Remember that time that Jesus was having this battle in the wilderness with Satan and they're going head to head and Satan is trying to tempt Jesus and Jesus looks at Satan, and he says, it is written. It is written. And then he quotes the Old Testament. See, that was Jesus' battle plan for fighting off evil and temptation. And I just think if uh, Jesus uh, paid a lot of attention to the Old Testament, then you and I should too. You know, today, uh, sometimes the Old Testament gets a bad rap, and you might wonder why it is that the Old Testament gets a bad rap. So I want to just spend a little bit of time talking about why I think, at least partially, why the Old Testament gets a bad rap. You probably remember uh, during the 16th century and the Protestant Reformation, this monk, this priest, this teacher, a guy by the name of Martin Luther, was reading the book of Romans. It was so critical in uh, Martin Luther's uh, faith development. He's reading through the book of Romans one day, and he has this aha moment, this epiphany. Then he finally goes, oh, now I get it. And of course, Luther on that day began to understand that living the Christian life is not about our works and what we do, but it is truly about how God, uh, what God has done for us by grace through faith. And so Luther starts teaching this idea of grace over and over and over. It's all about grace. It's all about grace. And he even latches on to this Latin term, sola gratia, grace alone. 
Luther is trying uh, to correct an error in the church, a heresy, a, a false teaching that uh, in order to be a good Christian, you got to do this stuff. And so in order to uh, combat or to uh, teach against that false heresy, he speaks and teaches about grace. And he says, grace alone, grace alone, grace alone. And have you ever noticed that oftentimes uh, when the pendulum is at one extreme in order to correct whatever that extreme is, the pendulum swings all the way over to another extreme and the error becomes every bit as devastating and destructive. See, as a young man, uh, Luther, uh, when he uh, began the Protestant Reformation, he was teaching about grace alone, grace alone, because he's trying to make this course correction in the orthodoxy, in the, in the right teaching of the church. And over time, what happened, Luther began to observe how people would respond to grace alone, grace alone, grace alone. You know what they did, right? They did what you and I would do. They abused the grace. And pretty soon, Luther was watching uh, people in his day using grace as an excuse to do whatever they wanted. So they would go out and sin like crazy. And rather than paying uh, in, in penance, you know, with work salvation, they just be like, grace alone, grace alone. I can do whatever I want. I can say whatever I want. I can behave whatever I want. Grace alone. And Luther's like, whoa, that's not good. And this became known in church history as the antinomian controversy. Anti, of course, means against. Nomian means the law. So the controversy was this group of people who were sola gratia, grace alone. They became against the law. They said, let's get rid of the law. We don't need the law. Let's just throw it out. It's a free for all. And that's what was going on in the life of the church. And Luther is like, that's not what I meant. But the cat was out of the bag. The die had been cast. And Luther, as an older, wiser man, he didn't call it the antinomian controversy. He called it the antinomian heresy. He said, this is a false teaching to get rid of the law. God gave us the law as a gift, and we should not neglect it. We should not ignore it. You know, years later, Dietrich Bonhoeffer called the antinomian grace alone in the church, this, this heresy, this false teaching, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer called it cheap grace. It's kind of like the uh, get out of free jail card uh, when you're playing Monopoly, right? Whatever happens as you're playing Monopoly, you all of a sudden pull out the card and you're like, ah, get out of jail free, right? And that is not grace alone. And the die was cast and there was not much Luther could do. And I think even today, many people, you'll hear people, good and meaning, well-meaning Christians say, ah, grace alone, grace alone. And it's true. We are indeed saved by grace alone. But we ought not 
use that as a get out of jail card willy-nilly and use that as an excuse for doing and thinking and behaving however we want because that becomes a heresy and that's using the grace of God. That is truly cheap grace. And that doctrine, that teaching in the life of the church today continues to do a lot of damage. And so these are some of the reasons why we need to pay attention to God's word. All of it, not just some of it. You know, I recently ran across a story um, uh, written by a, a storyteller, a, a woman by the name of Cindy Guthrie. And I think this is a much better idea for what it means to pay attention to God's word. She writes this, I read a newspaper report about some people who survived a tornado. When the wind picked up in the house, someone shouted, Auntie M, Auntie M. He had so fully internalized the story of the Wizard of Oz that it influenced his response when a tornado appeared in his own life. Here's what I like about that story. Is I think this is an invitation to so internalize, so soak up God's word that when tornadoes come in your life and my life, our first response is to just start quoting scripture and letting that flow through us. See, as we go through life and we bump up against different things, we're gonna respond in, a different, in different ways, right? And what if our responses were quoting scripture as Jesus did? It is written, have you not heard? See, I think that's what it means to live in God's grace, that we are just so uh, in, involved in God's word that it just, it, it, it transforms our hearts and our minds. You know, the last thing I'll just say and, and, and close with this about ways that we can uh, transform and renew our minds is through gathering together uh, as God's people in worship. You know, we have not gotten together uh, for worship for 14 weeks now. It was early March the last time we got together uh, for live worship. But next Sunday, uh, June 14th, we're going to gather together again for live worship. Now, some of you have told me um, that you really like coming to worship. And you've used the metaphor, many of you have used the metaphor that it, it fills up your tank, right? That all week long you're using energy and, and you're being drained. And, and, and by the end of the week, by Saturday, uh, maybe by Wednesday, I don't know, you're out of gas. You're out of gas. You're dry. You're, 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 you're just, you're, you're done. You're spent, right? And then many of you share with me, you come to, 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 to live worship on Sunday morning and it fills you up. It fills your spiritual tank and it sends you out back into the world so that you can keep going, doing what you do day in and day out. And, and I like that metaphor because I think that's a good metaphor for what worship is all about. Now, I know over the past uh, 14 weeks, um, uh, many of you have appreciated uh, the online messages, and, and I get it. It's uh, comfortable to sit at home in your pajamas 
uh, to drink your own coffee. Watch the message maybe at 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 3 o'clock. Maybe you watch the message on Wednesday or I don't know when you get to it later on that week. I get the convenience of tuning in and watching the messages online. I mean, you can sit in your bed for crying out loud. It's so easy. But there is something mission critical about God's people gathering together, looking each other eyeball to eyeball and saying, Jesus loves you. There's something about God's people gathering together live and speaking our confession to God together of hearing the absolution together, being told that we are forgiven children of God. There's something powerful, something renewing in our minds and in our lives that happens when we share in the sacrament of Holy Communion. So I want to invite you to come to worship, uh, live worship, outdoor worship uh, next Sunday. It's going to be a B-Y-O-L-C, Bring Your Own Lawn Chair event. And uh, we're going to worship God uh, together outdoors. And, and I'm just here to tell you, uh, it's going to look different uh, than it did 14 uh, weeks ago. But I still think it's going to be meaningful. I think it's going to be powerful. And I think it's going to help fill up your spiritual tank. Because we all need that, right? And I would imagine there might be some people uh, watching in uh, today. Um, and you haven't been to church maybe in years. Maybe it's been a good long time that uh, you just you haven't come in a while, right? And uh, maybe over the past few weeks with uh, the coronavirus and the economic uh, challenges and, and uh, all the violence and uh, uh, the racism and the hurt that's going on in the world, maybe you've been tuning in uh, over the past few weeks for the very first time and watched our Into the Wilderness series, and, and I'm so glad you did. But I want to say this, you are also welcome. You're welcome to come to Faith Lutheran Church on Sunday morning. We meet uh, at GE Union Park, uh, and it's a really, really friendly congregation. And normally we hug each other a lot, and uh, we get really close to one another, and we share a lot, and, and we're not going to be uh, doing all that uh, this time around, and probably not for uh, the, the foreseeable future. We're going to practice physical distancing, but we are not going to practice social distancing because we are a people that like to be social. We like to hang out with one another. We like to encourage one another. And so I want to invite you uh, to give us a chance and, and come and worship with us next Sunday uh, and, and study God's word together. And we're going to move on to the next leg of the stool because it's not enough to have right thinking, orthodoxy. We've got two more essentials to what it means to be an effective, uh, faithful follower of Jesus Christ. These things are so essential, and you need to hear about them, and you need to experience them. So come join us next week as we gather together live and worship God together. Let us pray. God, we thank you uh, that you have given us your word, your holy scripture 
that we can know and understand and have our minds renewed and our lives filled with so much goodness. God, we thank you for this remarkable uh, book uh, that we call the Letter to the Romans that Paul wrote and the ways in which Paul just gives it to, to us and helps us to understand what it truly means uh, to follow after you in Christian living. And so, Lord, help us to not grow weary of uh, fighting the good fight, of standing in right teaching, standing in true teaching, standing in teaching God that absolutely is going to be offensive to the world. But God, we know that this is who you've called us to be. We know that even in the midst of the hardship and struggle of right living, of right thinking, that you will lead us each and every day until one day we join you and all the saints. All these things we pray in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen.